Thanks and welcome to this Buck Halter podcast. This is our fifth edition of the Trade Secret and Employee Mobility podcast. My name is Dylan Wiseman. I'm the co-chair of the firm's Trade Secrets and Employee Mobility practice group, and I've been practicing exclusively in this field for 23 years. I'm Lisa Poe Fuller, and I'm a commercial litigator in the Sacramento Buckhalter office, and part of my practice focuses on trade secrets and employee mobility. Hello, I am Jarrett Osborne-Revis. I'm also an associate in Buckhalter Sacramento office. I'm a commercial banking and bankruptcy lawyer, and I've also been incorporating trade secrets and mobility uh, litigation into my practice. All right, in today's edition of the Buckhalter Trade Secret and Employee Mobility Podcast, we're talking about one of the checks and balances that the legislature has put into place in this area. In particular, uh, we represent both plaintiffs and defendants in trade secrets matters. That means we represent uh, companies who claim that their trade secret information has gone missing, and we seek to try to recover that. Uh, and seek a claim for damages. On the other side of that is that we also represent defendants, which are typically former employees, usually C-suite people, uh, founders and the like, who leave their jobs, go to another competitor or perhaps start up a business, and then find themselves in litigation with their former employers. And what we're talking about today, as I mentioned earlier, is the kind of checks and balances that are in place that the legislature has put in, which are the way that attorney's fees get awarded uh, to a defendant if they have to uh, deal with a plaintiff that has chased after them in bad faith and they file the lawsuit and they're commencing an action and litigating it. So uh, the bad faith standard is in California's version of the Uniform Trade Secrets Act and it has two different components. The first is uh, subjective bad faith, which we're going to talk about in this episode. And then in our next episode, we're going to talk about the second element, which is this element of being objectively specious. So for subjective bad faith, having handled these kind of cases for over two decades, I've noticed a lot of patterns that have developed in the type of cases where we're representing a founder, a former CEO who has been uh has received a lawsuit and the former employers claiming that the trade secrets misappropriation claim uh, has is there and they intend to uh, take it all the way through trial. And so one of those categories, and today we're going to talk about several of the kind of um, common factors in those cases that deal with subjective bad faith. And one of them is that uh, one party or its lawyer uh, isn't from California. Uh, Lisa, you've dealt with this one. Yes, so California has a very unique trade secret misappropriation legal framework. You want to make sure that you have an attorney that um, specializes in California trade secret law to highlight for the client certain issues. And so a lot of times uh, a party will bring a, a trade secret misappropriation case not knowing that there are certain California laws that make certain actions such as non-compete uh, provisions illegal. And so you want to make sure that your attorney specializes and understands those laws to ensure that you do not, that a court does not make a finding that you bring your claim and subject it with, in bad faith. So one of the 
One of the issues here is that California really is an island unto itself when it comes to competitive practices. And we see a lot that parties from out of state, uh, either the parties from out of state or the lawyers are from out of state, and they try to basically impose the rules that would apply commercially in other jurisdictions like Covenants Not to Compete uh, here in California. And so that's one of the, the common uh, occurrences that we see where there's subjective bad faith. One of the other um, ways that this also comes up is that uh, we deal with a lot of cases where either the the lawyer that's handling the file that's getting all this pressure to go out and prosecute this claim that really has not much traction, it really isn't that lawyer's client. And Lisa, you and I have had this kind of come up in a couple different cases where we're dealing with um, big firms and they've got partners on the file, but they're basically service partners. They're partners that don't have their own book of business. And they're kind of at the will of this person outside the state or somebody that's hyper aggressive and they're trying to use the lawyers as a tool. So you can speak to that a bit. Right. So we've had cases where there'll be an out of state attorney who represents the firm's client, the, that client for the firm, but then they don't realize that there's a specialized law in California and that they really need to focus and raise certain issues that only arise in California to their client. And so oftentimes they're not focusing on certain issues that are really important and they're not raising those issues to the client because they want to make sure they want um, all the decisions are being um, funneled through the main partner or shareholder on that file with that client. One of the other kind of common indicators in the subjective by bad faith realm is we see that when founders or CEOs leave and they form a new startup, that there's a big economic disparity between uh, the the company where they left and their new startup business. And Jared, you you and I have dealt on that that issue with a couple of different founders. Exactly, and in some of the cases, oftentimes courts will look to that disparity uh, because the employer tends to have a fear that the founder inevitably left with trade secrets and will disclose that information to his or her new company uh, and thereby prevent the former company from keeping its uh, trade secrets confidential. So in that context, the employer may have a incentive to file a lawsuit against the founder uh, or some other departing employee just to stifle competition and prevent that employee from disclosing uh, trade secrets to its new company, even if it doesn't have it. Yeah, it is no secret that this type of litigation is very expensive. And so that we've seen numerous times where uh, we're representing small startups or uh, founders or inventors that have left and they're chased after by their former employers with very little facts to support their claims. And nonetheless, because of the the kind of economic disparity, it's just flatly unfair. Uh, they they try to run the, the small startup into the ground. So that's one of the common uh, factors that we see in a lot of these kind of cases. Lisa, you and I have also dealt with cases where there's uh, a significant amount of time that expires after the employee leaves and before the, the, the former employer takes action. Yeah, we've seen in cases where an employee will leave and then that employee's new company might be successful or it may all of a sudden um, start up a new company and 
the uh, former employee will for, former employer will wait a very long time to then bring the action. And courts have looked at that and seen that sort of as a factor going to um, show bad faith. Why are they waiting so long to bring that claim? It seems as it would be more appropriate within a sh shorter time frame. Yeah, there's a three-year statute of limitations to bring a trade secrets claim, but it's one of those kind of things, if this is so mission critical to your business, why are you waiting until two years and six months after the employee left to go pursue this? Uh, and we've had a number of those kind of claims where uh, that you know, is one of those strong factors that, hey, maybe these folks really aren't doing this because their trade secrets are at risk. It's more that they uh, want to apply pressure to the, the startup and the former CEO. One of the things that I'll, I'll just talk about separately is that uh, there's a few things that I think courts really look for in earnest disputes about trade secrets. And one of them is a cease and desist letter that you, the lawyers try to work it out with uh, before they they jump into court. And the fact that you don't have one, I think, is one of those indicators that maybe they're not proceeding in good faith. So uh, in all the years I've been doing this, it always makes sense, even if the, the house is on fire to send out a cease and desist letter, if nothing else, to try to resolve this beforehand. And where we don't we see cases where that doesn't happen, uh, and they just immediately go to litigation, I'm always scratching my head and wondering about what the real motives are. Lisa, let's uh, talk a little bit too. There's been a number of cases that have dealt with uh, attorney's fees and bad faith, that have dealt with uh, the, the lack of an adequate investigation or lack of computer forensics, and you can speak to that. Right. So a lot of times companies are really afraid that a, de a departing employee will use their trade secrets at a competitor or a new employer. So they'll turn around and file suit without in a very short time frame where they have not conducted any type of investigation or any type of forensics. And so if a decision is made to file suit without any type of forensics or there's questionable forensics, such as the mere fact that, let's say, an employee accesses files um, but doesn't necessarily use them, they just access them, don't move them around, don't transfer them, and there's no additional evidence of misappropriation, those facts can really support a finding of bad faith for attorney's fees. Yeah, we have a case where the other side made a lot of hay out of the fact that certain files were accessed. And uh, access doesn't mean anything. Access just means that if somebody's sitting at their desk and uh, in the last few days before they left, they opened some files. Uh, so unless there's evidence, if you're dealing with electronic data theft, the best evidence is going to come out of the forensics. And we've seen cases where uh, the, the lawyers try to encourage the court to make the wrong finding about the forensics, or they purposely don't look into uh, obvious areas that they should be looking for to uh, for forensics. So again, I look at this as another one of these symptoms of uh, bad faith. Once the <clears throat> trade secrets cases get going and uh, there's get into the discovery process, there's the uh, process that's known as the Code of Civil Procedure 2019-210 statement, which is uh, acts as a, a barrier for the plaintiff, the injured party, to do discovery about the trade secret misappropriation until they can identify with reasonable particularity what the trade secret is. And this is, again, one of these kind of checks and balances measures that the legislature has put in. You don't get to just go chase after a competitor and then you know, 
say that almost anything is your tracing, you've got to identify it. So Jared, you and I have dealt with this issue quite a bit where we've had, come across um, companies that uh, claim that their trade secret misappropriation, that their trade secrets have been misappropriated, but then for one reason or another, can't seem to tell us what it is. Exactly, and that leads to a uh, finding or indicia of subjective bad faith or that the lawsuit was brought for an improper purpose. And that is why the legislature enacted this code section, as Dylan mentioned earlier. Uh, you really want to drill down the trade secret misappropriation plaintiff on what exactly they are claiming was misappropriated. And if they have trouble providing that information in a statement, or if they give you intentionally invasive discovery responses on that topic, you can start to sniff out perhaps some type of improper purpose in the lawsuit itself. Right. So, I mean, in cases where the trade secrets are have been stolen and they've done the forensics, they know exactly what files have been uploaded. So uh, I spend a, a fair amount of my time dealing with these kind of issues where we say, well, look, you, you claim it's been misappropriated. You've supposedly done these forensics. Give us a printout of what it is that was misappropriated, and that'll help frame the scope of discovery. And if they dance around and try to avoid these issues, I'm always wondering, you know, what are their motivations? Because this is one of those areas where the, the subjective bad faith standard looks at not only the way that the, uh, the parties litigate, uh, but as well, kind of their overall intent, because nobody's going to come out and say, yeah, we filed this thing in bad faith. It just never happens that way. Although we did have one case, we came pretty close. Um, but uh, so so we tended to, to, to kind of keep a log of all these little brick by brick, uh, block by block, little things that tend to add up to show bad faith. Um, we've had another another indication, I think, where there's bad faith is where the parties in the, in the lawsuit, and Lisa, you've been seeing this for yourself, where they file the lawsuit and then they start to go out and tell the competitors about what's going on and, and they try to badmouth the folks and then they say, well, you can't really do anything because California has what's called this litigation privilege, which means that whatever you say in the context of the lawsuit's arguably privileged. But from, from my vantage, I mean, I think that's one of those situations where they're not really filing the lawsuit because they've been damaged. They're filing the lawsuit for a PR purpose. Right. And so in a lot of cases, companies will send out letters to customers notify the, notifying them of the lawsuit, notifying them that there's all these allegations of misappropriation, and really um, putting the other competitor sort of in a bad light. And they mischaracterize sometimes the nature of the litigation, and then they claim that's protected under a litigation privilege. And sometimes courts are, the, you know, the litigation privilege is pretty expansive. And so in some cases, the court will find, yeah, that does um, protect those communications. And so, but if that's part of the bad faith determination, then the court will really look at how did that competitor use those letters? Did they really try to drive out the, the defendant in, um, out of business by sending out letters uh, that would make another company hesitant to use their business? Yeah, that's a really, really good point. We see a fair amount of that where, you know, lawsuits should be filed and pursued because there's there's damages or there's a need for injunctive relief and not for purposes that are related to publicity. Moving on to our next kind of topic under subjective bad faith, uh, one of the one of the uh, things that the that the courts have told us is fair game to look at. 
is that in the course of settlement, uh, if the parties exchange written settlement proposals and some of the settlement proposals are totally onerous, that can be looked at for bad faith. And Jerry, you dealt that issue as well. Yes, and in one of the cases we've had, uh, we have the other side inserting ant- or considered anti, blatantly anti-competitive provisions within that agreement, uh, looking to prevent that particular former employee from uh, moving to a new new place of employment. And that kind of provision in and of itself can perhaps be indicia of an improper purpose. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, we just uh, are in the midst of a, a case where the other side also put in the settlement terms basically all these covenants not to compete that would be unenforceable and probably violations of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Uh, and we introduced those to the court to say, look, um, our backs were up against the wall. They had basically held us hostage on all these terms. And uh, we, uh, you know, we prevailed and uh, we we're entitled to our fees. And this is an indication that this was not pursued because they were they were damaged. Uh, this was pursued because they were just trying to effectively extort us and obtain a competitive business advantage. Um, let's see. Then one of the other parts I think we can all talk about is that these cases are normally hotly contested. I think that's fair to say. Uh, but there's a difference between cases where they're hotly contested and cases where there's just no cooperation. And the, and the lawyers are making everything so difficult there's no stipulations and everything that is is overdone there's a ridiculous amount of discovery and so lisa i think both you and jared can talk about that right so we've worked in cases where the other side just refuses to stipulate drags out everything brings you know hundreds of motions to compel makes it really difficult and expensive um, to basically drive the defendant to want to settle and so uh, that's one thing that the courts really look at. Did the plaintiff or did the other side really try to make things very difficult, drag things out, or did they try to mitigate their damages? Did they try to resolve the issues? Did they try to make sure that they're not going to be damaged any further, or is the purpose just to drive their uh, competitor out of business? Right, so they could be uh, overly litigious in the way that they litigate the lawsuit to hide uh, the improper purpose of filing a lawsuit in the first place. Yeah, we see, <laughs> you know, we uh, have seen a fair amount of that. And I want to thank you guys, and please uh, subscribe to this Buck Halter podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thanks again, guys. Thank you.